Section 18 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 5, Part 3. A few days later, in the afternoon, Tilling was announced. He did not, however, find me alone, for my father and Aunt Mary had come to call, and besides these, Rosa and Lily, Conrad Althaus and Minister, to be sure, were in my drawing-room. I almost uttered a cry of astonishment. This visit came upon me with such a surprise, and at the same time so delighted and excited me. But the delight was soon over, when Tilling, after exchanging salutations with the company and taking a seat opposite to me, at my invitation, said in an unconcerned tone, I am come pour prendre congé, Countess. I am leaving Vienna in a few days. For long? Where are you going? What is the reason? What is it all about? asked the others all at once, and with interest, while I remained dumb. Perhaps for good, to Hungary, exchanging into another regiment, for love of the Magyars, explained Tilling, in answer to his different questioners. Meanwhile I had collected myself. It was a sudden resolution, I said, as calmly as I could. What harm has our Vienna done to you that you quit it in such a violent hurry? It is too lively and too gay for me. I am in a mood which makes one long to mope in solitude. Oh, well, said Conrad, the gloomier one's mood, the more one ought to seek amusement. An evening in the Carl's Theatre has a much more refreshing effect than passing all day musing alone. The best thing, my dear Tilling, to give you a shake-up, said my father, would, I am certain, be a jolly rattling war, but unluckily there is no prospect of that before us. The peace threatens to last as long as one can see. Well, I could not help remarking, that is an extraordinary collocation of words, war and jolly, peace and threatening. To be sure, assented the minister, the political horizon at the moment does not show any black points. Still, storm clouds sometimes rise quite unexpectedly all of a sudden, and the chance can never be excluded that a difference, even unimportant in itself, may cause the outbreak of war. I say that for your comfort, Colonel. As for myself, since I, in the virtue of my office, have to manage the home affairs of the country, my wishes must, to be sure, be directed exclusively to the maintenance of peace as long as possible, for it is this alone which is naturally adapted to further the interests lying in my domain. Still, this does not prevent me from taking note of the just desires of those who, from a military point of view, are, to be sure, permit me, Your Excellence interrupted Tilling, as far as I am myself concerned, to protest against the assumption that I wish for a war, and also to protest against the underlying principle that the military point of view ought to be different from the human. We exist in order to protect the country should an enemy threaten it, just as a fire engine exists in order to put out a fire if it breaks out, but that gives a soldier no right to desire war any more than a fireman to wish for a fire. Both involve misfortune, heavy misfortune, and no one, as a man, ought to rejoice over the misfortunes of his fellow men. 
"'You good, dear man,' I said in silence to the speaker. The latter continued, "'I am quite aware that the opportunity for personal distinction "'comes to the one only from conflagrations "'and to the other only from campaigns. "'But how poor of heart and narrow of mind "'must a man be before his selfish interests "'can seem to him so gigantic "'as to blot out the sight of the universal misery?' Peace is the greatest blessing, or rather, the absence of the greatest curse. It is, as you said yourself, the only condition in which the interests of the population can be furthered, and yet you would give to a large fragment of this population, the army, the right to wish for the cessation of the condition of growth, and to long for that of destruction? To nourish this just wish till it grows into a demand, and then perhaps obtains its fulfilment? To make war, that the army may anyhow be occupied and satisfied, is just as if we set fire to houses, that the fire brigade may distinguish itself and earn renown. "'Your comparison, dear Colonel, is a lame one,' replied my father, giving Tilling, contrary to his habit, his military title, perhaps to remind him that his opinions were not consistent with his calling. "'Conflagrations do nothing but damage.' while wars may get power and greatness for the country. How else have states been formed and extended, except by victorious campaigns? Personal ambition is surely not the only thing that makes soldiers delight in war. It is above all things pride in one's race, in one's country, that finds its dearest nourishment there. In a word, patriotism. Especially love of home, replied Tilling. I do not really understand why it is we soldiers in particular who make as if we had a monopoly of this feeling, which is natural to the majority of mankind. Everyone loves the soil on which he grows up. Everyone wishes the elevation and the good of his own countrymen. But happiness and renown are to be reached by quite other means than war. Pride can be excited by quite other exploits than deeds of arms. I, for instance, am much prouder of Anastatius Grün than of any of our field marshals. Well, but can anybody even compare a poet with a commander? cried my father. That is my question, too. The bloodless laurel is by far the more lovely. But, my dear Baron, said my aunt at this point, I have never heard a soldier speak so. What becomes, then, of the ardor of battle? of the warlike fire. Dear lady, those are feelings not at all unknown to me. It was by them that I was animated when, as a youngster of nineteen, I took the field for the first time. But when I had seen the realities of butchery, when I had been a witness of the bestialities which are connected with it, my enthusiasm evaporated, and I went into my subsequent battles, not with pleasure, but with resignation." Listen to me, Tilling. I have been present at more campaigns than you, and have also seen plenty of scenes of horror, but my zeal has not yet cooled. When in the year forty-nine I followed Radetsky, though a middle-aged man, I felt all the same delight as on the first occasion. Excuse me, Your Excellence, but you belong to an older generation, a generation in which the warlike spirit is much more lively than in ours, and in which the feeling for humanity, which is zealous for the abolition of all misery, 
and which is at this time extending in ever-widening circles, was still totally unknown. What is the good? Misery there must always be. It can no more be abolished than war. Pray observe, Count Althaus, that in these words you are defining the only point of view, one now much shaken, from which the past used to regard all social evils, i.e. the point of view of resignation, as one looks at what is inevitable, what is a natural necessity. But if ever, at the sight of a great evil, the doubtful question has forced itself on one's heart, must this be so, then the heart can no longer remain cold, and besides pity, a kind of repentance springs up. Not a personal repentance, indeed, but, how shall I express it, a protest from the conscience of the age. My father shrugged his shoulders. That is above me, said he. I can only assure you that it is not only we old grandfathers who think with pride and joy on our old campaigns, but also that most of the young men and boys, if asked whether they would like to go out to a war, would answer at once, yes, with pleasure, all possible pleasure. The boys, surely, they have still in their hearts the enthusiasm which is implanted at school, and of the others many answer, as you say, with pleasure, because that answer is looked on, according to the popular conception, as manly and courageous, and the honest, not willingly, might easily be interpreted as a proof of cowardice. Oh, said Lily, with a little shudder, I should be a coward too. Oh, how horrible it must be with bullets flying on all sides, and death threatening every instant. That is a sentiment which is natural in your mouth as a young girl, replied Tilling, but we men have to repress the instinct of self-preservation. Soldiers have also to repress the compassion, the sympathy for the gigantic trouble which invades both friend and foe, for next to cowardice, what is most disgraceful to us is all sentimentality, all that is emotional. Only in war, my dear Tilling, said my father, only in war. In private life, thank God, we too have soft hearts. Oh, yes, I know it. It is a kind of magic. Immediately on the declaration of war, one says all at once of any horror, oh, that goes for nothing. Children sometimes make the same agreement in their games. If I do this or that, it goes for nothing, you may hear them say. And in the game of war, the same conventions, though unspoken, apply. Manslaughter is no longer to count as manslaughter. Robbery counts no longer as robbery. Theft is not thieving, but requisition. Villages burned represent not conflagrations, but positions taken. To all the precepts of the statute book, of the catechism, of the moral law, as long as the game lasts, the same applies, it goes for nothing. But if ever occasionally the gambling fervor slackens, if the convention that it goes for nothing disappears from one's conscience for one moment, and one comprehends the scenes around one in their reality, and conceives of this depth of misery, this wholesale crime as meaning something, then one would wish for one thing only to deliver one out of the intolerable woe of such a sight, namely to be dead. Well, really, remarked Aunt Mary meditatively, 
sentences like thou shalt not murder thou shalt not steal love thy neighbor as thyself forgive thine enemies go for nothing repeated tilling and those whose calling it is to teach these sentences are the first to bless our arms and call down heaven's blessing on our murderous work and rightly so said my father the god of the bible was of old time the god of battles the lord of armies he it is who commands us to draw the sword he it is men always interrupted tilling decree that what they themselves want to see done is his will and they attribute to him the enactment of eternal laws of love which whenever his children begin the great game of hatred he suspends by his divine goes for nothing just as rough just as inconsistent just as childish as man is the god whom man has set before us and now countess he added getting up forgive me for having inflicted such a tedious discussion on you and allow me to take leave stormy feelings were thrilling through me all that he had just said had rendered the beloved man yet dearer to me and must i now part from him perhaps never to see him again to exchange thus a cold farewell with him before other people and let all end so it was not possible i should have been obliged if the door had closed on him to burst out in sobs that must not be i rose up one moment baron tilling i said i must at any rate show you that photograph i spoke to you about a little while ago he looked at me in amazement for no talk about a photograph had ever passed between us however he followed me to the other corner of the drawing-room where some albums were lying on a table and where we were out of hearing of the others i opened an album and tilling stooped over it meanwhile i spoke to him in a low voice and all in a tremble i cannot let you go in this way i will i must speak to you as you will countess i am listening no not now you must come again to-morrow at this hour he seemed to hesitate i command it by the memory of your mother for whom i wept with you oh martha my name so pronounced thrilled through me like a flash of joy to-morrow then i repeated and looked into his eyes at the same hour we had settled it i returned back to the others and tilling after he had put my hand to his lips again and saluted the others with a bow went out of the door a singular person remarked my father shaking his head what he has been saying just now would find little favor in the higher circles when the appointed hour struck next day i gave orders as on the occasion of his first visit to admit no one else except telling i looked forward to the coming visit with a mixture of feelings passionate anxiety sweet impatience and some degree of embarrassment i did not quite know the precise things i should say to him on that subject i would not reflect at all if tilling asked me some such question as now then countess what have you to communicate to me what do you wish of me i could not surely answer him with the truth i have to communicate to you that i love you my wish is that you should stay here but he would not surely cross-examine me in so bald a way 
and we should readily understand each other without such categoric questions and answers. The main point was to see him once more, and not to part, if parting must come, without having spoken one heartfelt word, and exchanged one fervent farewell. But even in thinking the word farewell, my eyes filled with tears. At this moment the appointed visitor came. "'I obey your command, Countess, and—but what is the matter with you?' he said, interrupting himself. "'You have been weeping?' You are weeping still. I, no, it was the smoke, the chimney in the next room. Sit down, Tilling, I am glad you have come. And I happy that you ordered me to come, do you recollect, in the name of my mother. On that I determined to tell you all that is in my heart. I, well, why do you stop? To speak is even harder to me than I thought. You showed so much confidence in me on that night of pain when you were watching by the deathbed. How comes it that you have now lost all confidence again? In those solemn hours I had gone out of myself. Since then my usual shyness has again seized me. I perceive that on that occasion I had overstepped my right, and I have avoided your neighborhood, that I might not overstep it again. Yes, indeed, you seem to avoid me. Why? Why? Because, because I adore you. I answered nothing, and to hide my emotion I turned my head away. Tilling also was struck dumb. At last I collected myself and broke the silence. And why did you wish to leave Vienna? I asked. For the same reason. Could you not recall the determination? Yes, I certainly could. The exchange is not yet settled. Then remain. He seized my hand. Martha. It was the second time he had called me by my name. These two syllables had an intoxicating sound for me. I was compelled to answer what would sound as sweet to him. Another two syllables, in which lay all that was bursting my heart. So lifting my eyes to his, I said softly, Frederick. At this instant the door opened and my father came in. Ah, there you are. The footman said you were not at home, but I replied I would wait for you. Good day, Tilling. I am much surprised to find you here after your adieu of yesterday. My departure is put off again, Your Excellence, and so I came to pay my daughter an arrival call. All right. And now to tell you what brought me here, Martha. There is a family event. Tilling got up. Then I am perhaps in the way. Oh, my communication is not so very pressing. I wished Papa and his family event to the Antipodes. No interruption could have come more inopportunely. Tilling could do nothing now but go. But after what had passed between us, going did not mean parting. Our thoughts, our hearts, remained united. When shall I see you again? He asked in a low voice as he kissed my hand on leaving. "'Tomorrow, at nine o'clock in the Prater, on horseback,' I answered rapidly in the same tone. My father took a rather cold leave of him as he went out, and when the door was shut behind him, "'What is the meaning of this?' he asked, with a stern countenance. "'You tell them to deny you, and I find you tete-a-tete -tete with this gentleman?' I turned red, half in anger, half in embarrassment. "'What is the family event which you—' "'This is it.' 
I wanted to get your lover out of the way, so that I might tell you what I think of it, and I regard it as a very important event for our family that you, Countess Dotsky, near Althaus, should trifle with your reputation in this way. My dear father, the most secure guard of my reputation and my honor has been given me in the person of little Rudolf Dotsky, and as to what concerns the authority of the Count Althaus, allow me to remind you with all possible respect that in my capacity as an independent widow I have outgrown it. I have no intention at all of taking a lover, if that is what your conjecture points at, as it seems to be, but if I choose to decide on marrying again, I reserve myself the right of choosing quite freely according to my own heart. Mary Tilling? What are you thinking about? That would be a real calamity in the family. I should almost like better, but no, I won't say that. But seriously, you have no such notion, I hope. What is there to say against it? It is only a little while since you came offering me a brevet captain, a captain and a major. Tilling has already risen to the rank of lieutenant-colonel. That is the worst thing about him. If he were a civilian, he might be pardoned for such views as he expressed yesterday, but in a soldier they come near the bounds of treason. No doubt he would like to get his discharge, so as not to be exposed to the danger of having to make another campaign, the fatigues and sufferings of which he evidently dreads. And as he has no fortune, it is a very good idea of his to want to make a rich marriage." but I hope to God that he will not find a woman to carry this idea out who is the daughter of an old soldier that has fought in four wars, and would be ready to-day to turn out with all possible pleasure, and the widow of a brave young warrior who found a glorious death on the field of honour. My father, who had been pacing up and down the room with great strides as he spoke thus, had become as red as fire, and his voice trembled with excitement. I also was moved to my heart's core. The set of the phrases, the contemptuous words in which the attack on the man of my heart was clothed, annoyed me, but I did not care to make any rejoinder. I quite felt that my defence could not remove the unfounded injustice here done to Tilling. That my father considered the views expressed yesterday as so completely false depended merely on a total failure to understand them. My father was utterly blind to the point of view which Tilling had reached. I could not make him see. I could not teach him to apply a different ethical standard than the military, which indeed was, in General Althaus's eyes, the highest standard, to the thoughts which Tilling cherished as a man and as a philosopher. But while I remained so completely dumb in the presence of the outbreak that I had had to listen to, that my father might well believe he had made me ashamed of myself and stifled my project in the bud, I felt myself drawn with redoubled longing towards the man so misunderstood and strengthened in my resolve to be his. By good luck I was really free. My father's disapproval might, to be sure, trouble me, but as to restraining me from following my heart's impulse, that it could not do. And besides, there was no room in my soul for any great trouble. 
the wonderful, the mighty happiness which had opened before me in the last quarter of an hour, was too lively to allow any vexation to mingle with it. End of section 18